0: Welcome to all those hearing this message given on August the 2nd of 2014 on Saturday at approximately 2.25 in the afternoon. My name is David Thompson. I'm here to share with you where the Holy Spirit has spoken from his word today as I have sought his leading to the right chapter through the casting of lots. Today I received Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we discover that again, God in his sovereign power is bringing forth a theme. Considering the fact that it was only on July the 30th that I was talking about the election of God from first Thessalonians chapter 1 here again we have a similar theme brought out but before I get into sharing from this passage of scripture I want to read this chapter Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the Saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches Of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he had purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom also, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that holy spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I find that this passage is so full that I feel very inadequate. With Just spending a half hour on it with some writing included to be able to share this apart from God's grace being imparted by the Holy Spirit to speak as the oracles of God. And so I trust now, Father God in heaven, and ask for your grace to speak what you would say to the body of Christ. As I mentioned, we spoke on election, on the election of grace just recently in a message on 1 Thessalonians and how Paul mentioned to new believers that were converted that he knew their election of grace and rejoiced over knowing their election of grace. In this passage in Ephesians, The word grace is also emphasized significantly throughout of it. And there's a particular statement that I want to emphasize that is particularly emphasized. And it is the statement or the phrase, if you will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is first mentioned in verse 6. It is also mentioned in verse 13. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. But first I want to focus on just the first section of this passage. Starting from approximately verse 1 to around verse 7 or thereabouts. There is an emphasis on the Father from the very beginning in relation to the Son. It says in verse 2, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the recognition that grace and peace comes from God and from the full expression of God in his government through Jesus Christ in the world. The Son is the full expression of the Father, as mentioned in Hebrews 1.4. The word son actually means expression. He is the one through which he communicates in the time and space realm to his creation. One God governing in three dimensions. Beyond time and space is the originator as the father. In time and space ruling as the son. The expression of God into this time and space realm. And as the Holy Spirit filling all things also in creative activity as personage. Now, considering that, there is worship that is expressed unto God the originator, the Father. That we are blessed in verse 3, it says, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. This is something that as believers we can walk in, we can enter into, being in the place of relationship with God the Father and God the Son, one God, the Almighty's one called Elohim. And no a positioning and a communion in a realm that is beyond this present physical realm. Even though in our body we are totally aware and walking in our body, there is this blessing of fellowship with God that we can know, we can transcend the physical circumstances we are in without in this case, I would say becoming impractical, as some have said, becoming so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. I, it's a poor illustration. Really, it's better to, <laughs> in a way to be uh, more heavenly minded so that we are of least less earthly good in some certain respects. But what I'm trying to emphasize here is we can be fully aware in our physical being, fully cognizant, and yet at the same time have a communion with God where we experience a realm that is far beyond this realm, where we are conscious of communion in a realm with the Father and the Son that is actually in reality way beyond this world, way beyond the second heaven, which is the universe and the galaxies. It is in that place The throne room of God. Not all of us, even as believers, know what it is to enter into the Holy of Holies. But he is calling us to be in a relationship with him. Whereas it was the case with John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. It says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. To be in the spirit of God is to be in a relationship of fellowship with God, even in the busyness of things of life, we can know an inner communion and fellowship with God, where we could even experience at times amazing revelation and thoughts brought into our being. And we are to come to a place in our lives of knowing such a relationship with God, in fact, we can be assured of it because it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace in the time of need. We can come boldly, not in presumption, but in great humility and reverence and awe, for it is that that brings one in to the holy place or the place of communion, if you will, with God. It says in the word of God that the secret of the Lord is with those that fear him. And it says in Psalm 91, he that abideth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And God will spread the skirt of his presence or the wings of his presence over those that have the secret which is the secret of abiding in him out of the fear of God. And I will continue to emphasize one verse that even Christ himself is described in Isaiah 33 around verse 5 or 6. It says the fear of the Lord is his treasure and it speaks in other passages of Christ in relation to the fear of God, making being in him and causing him to be brought into life and relate to know a releasing of the grace of God through him. Of course, he is God. But there is always, even in the oneness of God, this amazing, mysterious relationship, which I cannot go into here without getting into a sidetrack of in-depth teaching. Except to say that there's always in the relationship of one God, a reverence towards the perfection of his love, the integrity of his love that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest corruption or anything that is contrary to that quality that always chooses the highest good over any more immediate fulfillment, which is God's love, that caused him to make the ultimate choice in the sacrifice of himself to bring forth a bride. And so the Son loved the Father so much that he was willing to express that appreciation out of the reverence he had for the glory of the Father. That glory being the integrity of his holiness, this flaming fire that is the foundation for God to spring forth in creativity and expression of his love that is ultimately expressed in the fact that God would humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature, so that you could become reconciled to God and become a corporate bride that he could give as a love offering unto the Father out of appreciation of his reverence for this glory that he reciprocates within himself, towards the government of God and origination and transcendence beyond beyond time and space as the Father. And of course, it is not just the reverence towards the holiness of God, but out of the fact that from that springs forth God's great love that is so great that he becomes a perfect atoning sacrifice to reconcile all things unto himself, it says, whether it be things on earth or things in the heavens. And we don't fully understand these mysteries. And I don't purport to understand. But I know that this passage in Ephesians chapter 1 is bringing forth the ultimate meaning and purpose of this universe. And why all things exist and why you exist and of wanting and encouraging you to enter in to that destiny that brings ultimate, lasting fulfillment that is ever-enlarging in creativity and capacity to love, even as God is, as he continues to be creative, because this very being is love, which is creative. And so it says here in this passage, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. This was planned even before the world was created. And one could get into great depth here, and I could, on the fall of Adam and Eve. And and I've written in my book on all of these things, which is a very in-depth book that should be finished, I hope, within this year. It's basically on the fear of God, but it involves all of these things. So God had this all planned because he wanted a corporate bride. That was his ultimate purpose, to govern with him in his creative activity that is ever going on in an ever-expanding universe that he is creating that will be without corruption as this present state is, in this physical dimension that we are in. It is of note and interest to know in case there are those of you that aren't aware of it, that there was there has been in the last 16 years a big project in Europe. Some say it was a $16 project. Other places say it was a $10 billion. It involved 60,000 scientists from around the world. There's never been such an amazing collaboration of knowledge and of power. And what are they? What did they build? They built the largest machine by far in the world, called the Hadron Collider. This. Collider had one main purpose. It was to discover what they call the God particle. It's also deemed by another name, which is the Higgs boson, but it is often called the God particle because they did not understand what was causing everything in the physical realm to have mass. They already from smaller, what are these? Well, briefly explaining it, they shoot protons and lead ions at almost very close to the speed of light, so close that you may as well call it the speed of light. And then they collide in large chambers with minus colder than outer space, minus 273 Celsius and uh, gravitational pulls from large magnets that are thousands and thousands of times greater than the magnetism of the earth. And these explosions happen when they are colliding in these large chambers that are bigger than Eiffel Tower. As far as weight and mass, without with all kinds of sophisticated cameras. When these explosions take place, the temperature from the explosions is a hundred thousand times greater than the heat of the heart of the sun. And there's billions of explosions that take place every second, and out of that, the computers filter out about a million every second for analysis in order to discover what is. And the whole main purpose was to discover the God particle. It was discovered in July of 2012. And you can look up the Hadron Collider on the internet and all about it. But they're planning to increase the force of it, even though they've already discovered it at 7 TeV. if I'm pronouncing it right. They're planning to bring it up to almost 14 TeV in 2015. And people are worried that something massive might happen because of the tremendous forces that are involved. But I'm not getting sidetracked here, but here you see men coming together, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth and putting tremendous resources and knowledge together, amazing unity as never before. But they won't acknowledge, even when they discover that the god it's a God particle. What is the God particle? Well, their theory about the God particle before it was discovered is that there's some kind of background force that is causing the various conjugations of energy, which is basically different. The atoms and all that are different types of energy. But they know that there's about 10 or more dimensions that are just as real as the physical realm. So they know there's this realm now. There's all kinds of evidence that's very solid from what they've discovered. And now even more so the God particle. And again, it's too much to go into in this message. Except to point out, That this is man in independence of God not coming to the knowledge of the ultimate, meaning why all things are the way they are. And yet everything they are looking at is pointing towards this ultimate purpose that is described here in Ephesians chapter 1. And one thing that is emphasized is that God has even pre-marked, because he is attached, yeah, the pattern, the God particle, now they know that there's something attached to every particle of existence. Well, wouldn't you know it, it is actually God that is attached to every particle of existence and in many different dimensions that are just as real as this physical realm and a lot more complex. And I could go into great detail in all of this because I've done all the research there's a mathematical language that is discovered this long ago. These various dimensions, it's highly supported by math and now confirmed all the more. But here we have this statement in verse 5. God has predestined us. He has even known and pre-marked our past so that certain things would help happen in our life. In fact, it says in the Word of God, in another passage, as Paul is speaking in the book of Acts, He says this, that God has foreknown the boundaries of the nations and has confined them within certain restrictions to corner them to the place where they would turn to God and find the truth. But as I mentioned in my previous message, when I did a greater definition on free will and election, God has allowed all of these things, because he's attached every particle of existence and knows everything, he can allow things to be pre-marked. He already knows who is going to choose to follow the truth and who isn't. And that doesn't mean that one's free will is negated, for it is very clear in the word of God that God is not willing that any should, should perish, and that we all have free choice. Nevertheless, he has allowed things to happen in this world. And nations are put in a place of confinement for one purpose, that out of their own free will, they may come to the knowledge of the truth. The same in our individual lives. Things that have been allowed to bring us like the prodigal son to the end of ourselves, God already foreknew that it would bring us to the place where we saw the emptiness and the meaninglessness of life and finally cried out to the truth. Others, they harden their hearts and give themselves over to worship the devil instead of following the truth. It's like this. A large portion of the food we eat is filtered out of the body as waste, but a small portion passes through the filtering system and becomes a lasting part of the body. And likewise, it is true that those that become disillusioned with all the deceptions of their own heart and false religions and false belief systems that are not based on reality, nor can satisfy, can come to the place where they can, like the prodigal son, cry out and say, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and come to the knowledge of the truth, and thus enter in, passing through all those philtres of delusion to become a lasting part of the corporate bride that God is bringing forth, which is heaven. And those that choose to be otherwise, they are the source of their own choices, for they are free-willed beings. That is the only way they could have the capacity to love, and God's purpose is to bring beings with free will, with his capacity to love into harmony with his love. that is only possible when one chooses to fear God. And choosing to fear God is making a choice to acknowledge what is ultimately trustworthy and ultimately real, and it can only be possible as one thing. And that is an integrity of love that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it, which is the holiness of God. Integrity of love, that is transcendent in mercy. And it's when we acknowledge that God is our life source and that the reason he is ultimately trustworthy is because he is holy, but also more so because out of that holiness he is transcendent with the power to provide forgiveness because he himself absorbed the judgment of sin upon himself for us. For no human being or mere creature could possibly be a perfect sacrifice to absorb the sin of all creation. And if there, and nor would God want people worshiping a creature for saving them. Only God is the Savior. And that Savior is revealed through Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection on the cross in the center of history. And the theme that is brought forth in this passage of Scripture in Ephesians. Is simple in some sense. And that is that we, as it says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. We are accepted when we come to the place where, from the depths of our heart, there is a genuine praise for the glory of His grace. Now, what is the glory? It is the weight. It is the reality of the being of God. And the being of God is filled with grace. It is filled with goodness. Why is it filled with grace? Because there's these two aspects that I'm emphasizing, which are involved in choosing to acknowledge the truth, which is the fear. It is a choice to to acknowledge God for the reality of who he is. It is is first acknowledging the holiness of God or the truth of God this integrity of love that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love that will not tolerate or condone corruption that's why he broke out as a blazing fire of judgment even if Israel came even near him or close to him to look at him in the Old Testament because he is holy and he cannot condone the slightest principle of corruption And it is of the Lord's mercies, it says in God's word, that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. It is his compassion that issues out of this holiness, which is the foundation for love and creativity. That he could love us so much that he himself poured out his lifeblood on the cross and became a perfect atoning sacrifice suffering more than you, a mere creature, humbling himself more than you, a mere creature. And when you see that and you choose to recognize a God who has that integrity of love and yet is transcendent in such grace, it is out of that that there is the containment of ultimate goodness or love that is ever-expanding, that can hold unlimited power, unlimited life. Without being corrupted by it and ever enlarge in it. And so, when you see how much God has loved you and you see His holiness, you recognize you're guilty. You recognize you deserve the judgment of God and eternal hell. But then you see the greatness of His mercy out of that choice to fear God. And in that, you see the greatness of His love to you personally. So that you can be reconciled to God and become part of this corporate bride and ultimate purpose for which all things are created. It is to be part of the government of God that is without corruption. And so you cannot help but be filled with praise and adulation when you see how great God's love is towards you. Yes, yes. There's great glory that comes out of the unmerited favor of God. That is the grace of God. You'll find various passages in both the Old and New Testament that talk about the gospel being the gospel of grace and truth or holiness and mercy in the pre-Christ scriptures as often emphasized. It's both basically saying the same thing. And from the time of Adam until now, there's been one message, and that is that there is only one God, and that this one God has provided a way of forgiveness through himself. Because he has these two qualities, as it were, the ultimate negative and positive of the universe. The ultimate negative is really a great positive. It is the integrity of God's love and holiness And the ultimate positive, which is the issuance of God's love in grace, in mercy, to provide destiny and purpose to creation. And if he couldn't provide that because he couldn't assure mercy and forgiveness, he would have created a creation that is imperfect, which would imply that he is. That's why you can know that any false religion that emphasizes one God that is holy, but a God that cannot assure mercy and destiny, is a deception and a counterfeit, that originated in Cain, who became bitter and alienated and got a ro- and received a wrong perception of God because of the consequences of the curse that he was offended at and lost sight of the goodness of God. That God must require consequence in this universe that goes out of free choice against his will. Instead of dwelling on the consequences of holiness, We ought to dwell on the ultimate purpose behind those consequences, which is to corner us to the recognition of the fact that the holiness of God is transcendent to issue forth in unmerited favor or grace, mercy, because God loved you so much that he died on the cross. It physically tasted death for your sins and conquered it. I'm not here to go into an in-depth and all about that, except to say that God didn't. He was always one with the Father. Even on the cross, he trusted the Father and entrusted his spirit to him, even though he experienced that judgment of separation. He was still in that separation, linked to God, for he is God. And so, in this passage of Scripture, and I forgot to look at the time, but I'll continue. It says that we are accepted in the Beloved because we come to the place of a genuine praise in our heart of the glory of His grace. This is the evidence of true conversion. True conversion, belief, the word believe in the Greek, is not a mere intellectual assent it actually means persuasion. It means moral persuasion. In other words, it's saying here, after trusting in the gospel of salvation, there is a belief which is basically a persuasion that results in confession and possession. And I will go into that in a minute here. It's just a little further down here in this passage. in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his glory. verse 7, wherein bound abounded toward us in all wisdom, which is the right application of what we know, and prudence. Prudence basically has a, a different understanding, more or less, and it is this. It is intellectual or moral insight. It also strongly emphasizes mental action or activity. So it's an acknowledging even mentally. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So it was in himself that this was all purposed because he is love. He wanted to express that love in the most strong and full and creative way which is why his plan is for this corporate bride and why the son was willing to lay down his life, to love the father, and the father was willing to let the son go in order to inherit this bride. And so it's emphasized this ultimate purpose of creation in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him. That is God's ultimate purpose, is that there is such a harmony and unity of his creation with him, and particularly of the saints and of those here that are being redeemed in this world from every tribe and nation and background, making a beautiful display of unity. And it describes us in another passage of scripture where it says that his intention is to display to all principalities and power the manifold wisdom of God. Yeah, the wisdom to make this beautiful mosaic of such uniqueness and individuality, and yet with such incredible love and unity as described in the New Jerusalem, which I won't go into here. We have obtained an inheritance in this New Jerusalem, as mentioned in verse 11, in whom. Also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Again, there's this emphasis on how God premarks nations, premarks individuals to be put in certain positions of restriction and so on for the intent that they would be brought forth anew by the Spirit of God, individual and even as nations be converted to God. That's God's intention. And so it emphasizes again in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory. It says corporately, we should be to the praise of his glory. Who first trusted in Christ? Remember I mentioned, okay, you got the first statement. Who first trusted in Christ? And also he trusted after that he heard the word of truth. You see, it's when You hear or you see the evidence through creation, which is another form of hearing. Many people have come to the saving knowledge of Christ that have never heard the gospel. God just revealed himself through a vision to them. And I could speak here for some time of many examples of that. I have read of them. There's been different ones that have been converted that way. In the Indonesian revival, there was a savage tribe that had never heard of the gospel. And yet they inquired of God and ended up coming to the knowledge of God and then they came later on with Bibles and so on. I mean, I could talk for a long time here. You can look in the book, Eternity in Their Hearts, of another situation that is an example of predestination of a whole tribe, a large tribe. Now, I forgot the exact name of the tribe. I think it might've been the Karan tribe, I'm not sure. It's in Northern India. But this tribe, had their own, they were a head-hunting tribe, and they had their own prophets. And they would prophesy, and they prophesied for probably centuries about how they fell from the one true God, but that there would come a man with white skin that would bring the lost book of God to them. And one day, one of their prophets got up and said, The time has come. The man with the white skin has arrived, and we must go. And meet him. They'd never seen a person with white skin before. But they saddled they, they they followed one of their donkeys and let the donkey lead them. And the donkey came into the city and went into a compound and stood at the well. And then there was a man inside the well digging the well, and he came out. And when he came out he had white skin and they were shocked, and they were overwhelmed. Do you have the book of God? They said. And he said, Yes. Basically, that's in essence what he said. And they said, you must come immediately and tell us all about this book. For we have been waiting for centuries and centuries to hear about this message of being brought back to the one true God. This is a headhunting tribe. This is a true account, I am telling you. You can look it up on the internet. You can go to the book and see all about it. They got the photos and everything. Multitudes and multitudes of these people from this headhunting tribe were converted to Christ in droves. And so here is an example of predestination and of a whole tribe being confined because of their sin and suffering the consequences of coming to the point where finally they are open to be receptive to the good news of the gospel and to find their destiny in God. And so we see in this passage in Ephesians... That we have obtained an inheritance, and after we trusted, because we the trust comes why, you cannot trust what isn't ultimately trustworthy. Genuine trust is towards what is ultimately revealed as trustworthy, and that is only found in this God of love that has such integrity that He will not tolerate sin, and yet can provide destiny and purpose because he became a perfect atoning sacrifice. It ought to smite our heart. It ought to cause a deep circumcision in our heart that would cause praise to the glory of his grace. The glory is the heaviness or the reality or the wonderfulness of this unmerited favor through the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And it goes on in this passage of Scripture. In whom he also trusted after that he heard a word of truth. So I mentioned that part. But it says this, after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Yes, those that genuinely believe from their heart experience the presence of God's Spirit come into their lives. And that is the evidence of the down payment that they are going to inherit this inglorious inheritance in heaven forever if they persevere to the end and do not turn away from God, but continue in the hope and are not moved away from the hope of the good news that they have received. And so Paul the Apostle goes on here, and he says in verse 15, Wherefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing him not intellectually, but intimately in one's heart. Wisdom and revelation. Revelation is something that is caught and not taught. It results out of a deep turning in the heart, which is what happens when there's a true belief in the heart. There's a circumcision that comes in the heart from that two-edged sword of the word of God, which is grace and truth, or holiness and mercy, that is shown and unsheathed clearly in the atoning work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is in that that we need to focus and be filled with worship continually, for it is how they worship in heaven, the Lamb that was slain before the world was created, the Lamb of God, which is just God manifest to his creation, the one true God, the Almighty's one, Elohim, And here we see that God, Paul is praying that we would have such a revelation in knowing God that comes out of entering into that circumcision that bursts the praise of glory to the grace of God. It says that as we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we are to walk in him. And brothers and sisters, it is a matter of learning to turn from our hearts with all our heart. There is a time in the days of Enoch when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it was that deep cry from the heart that caused them to enter into relationship with God. It says in the word of God that the Lord is rich unto all those that call upon him. This is a call that comes from the depths of one's heart because there's a circumcision in the heart. God is wanting his creation to call out, to call out all those that are lost and in darkness, to call out as if they were drowning and cry with all their heart, God, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will hear those that cry out of the recognition of who God is because they've chosen no longer to hide in their own delusions, but to choose to focus and see him for who he is in his holiness and his mercy, his truth, and his grace. It is the gospel of grace and truth that I am preaching that is from the very time of Adam and Eve, and that still today is calling for all people to call on the name of the Lord that they might be saved. And then we go on here And we read this, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I mean, I can see I would end up preaching here for hours. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. So we have the revelation and the knowledge of him. We have the eyes of our understanding being enlightened. This again speaks of an understanding. It says that it's the hardness of the heart that blinds it was because of the blindness of their heart that they could not receive an understanding of what God was saying. That's why Christ spoke to them in parables. But when, the, when there is a heart that is open, that is soft, you see, it's out of the fear of God that there is a true breaking of hardness that happens. It is a choice to focus on who God is that involves a turning of the heart, that involves spending quality time in prayer seeking him. It doesn't just come from some act. It comes from a hunger to give up things we want to do in our own agenda and set aside significant time to seek him in prayer each day and in the word of God each day. And to wait on Him, to to curb our own tendencies of self-initiation, to mutter things before God and just be in awe of who He is and wait until there is a distilling in our being. It says in God's Word that His doctrine will distill as the dew. The dew speaks of reflection of the light, which is the Son of God, being typified in the physical sun. And it is as our heart learns to wait on God that it becomes receptive to the light and it, be, it comes to be able to allow a distilling of revelation of who God is and of understanding of who God is that frees us from the bondage of being manipulated by the temporal things of this world. It says those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy." Don't allow the temporal baits of the things in this world to draw you in to a hypnotic state of focus that would suck you in like a vortex. The closer you get, the harder it is to pull out of the lusts of the flesh. How do you conquer that? You conquer it by an opposite focus, which is setting your mind on the Spirit of God your heart on the spirit of God and choosing to recognize the greatness of his love and that he can satisfy far more than these things that are a lie, lying vanity. They would say they can satisfy when they cannot. They will leave you more empty and more grasping like a black hole in outer space with a corruption in your being that is destructive that if you do not repent of, will drag you in a direction of total torment forever apart from God because of rejecting his love. I could go on in this passage, it's taking a long time, but, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power? God wants to reveal the exceeding greatness of his power the power that raised Christ from the dead, as it says in verse 20, and caused him to conquer all things and to be above all things because he is God. And he is the author and the finisher of your faith and the creator as the father. And the redeemer as the son, one true God, the almighty's one. And his purpose as described here in Ephesians, is to bring forth this corporate bride. It is according to the working of his mighty power in us that we can know the exceeding greatness of his power to us where to believe. And what allows the working of his mighty power in us, that power that raised Christ from the dead, is this right focus that causes the praise of glory towards the grace of God. It is a focus that is first on God and secondly sees one another out of the love of God instead of the, those things that are not perfected in one another. And has a mind that is like the mind of Christ, that instead of judging the imperfections in one another, gets down and wants to wash the other person's feet with the word of God. And even if they are offensive and do wrong to us, to initiate reconciliation by admitting our faults to them it says in the word of god that we are to share one another's faults and pray for one another that we may be healed and the reason many of us are not healed is because we haven't firstly discerned the greatness of god's love out of the fear of god to have been able to discern thereby that same sense of god's image in one another that is transcending over the weaknesses and faults that motivates us out of love To have the attitude of Christ towards his creation. To humble himself more than the weaker in order to bring the weaker forth. There is a verse in the Song of Solomon that says, We have a sister that has no breasts, but we will build around her beautiful pillars. And so it is that God is bringing forth his bride. And he's calling us to be those that raise up the valleys. And if there are those that are proud, of we sense that we are proud to humble ourselves, to make the crooked places straight and the rough places smooth so that no longer in our meetings are we conscious of the leader more than Christ who's walking in our midst or of one another, whether we're a valley or a mountain. But we come to the place where Christ is all in all, where there's neither male nor female because the love of God is shed abroad on our hearts by the Holy Ghost and causing God to be able to fill those living stones with the habitation of his presence, that we would be one so that we are in his name, so that whatever we pray, we have the answer. And there is no longer weakly and sickly people among us because of unforgiveness and wrong judgment out of hate towards one another. God is calling his church to repent of being denominational, to repent of being judgmental, to start the meetings in humility on their faces before God and allow him to bring forth his government. I could talk for so much longer, but time is going on. May this that I've shared impact you by the Spirit of God. It says we are to give God no rest until He causes Jerusalem to go forth as a torch that burns. And it's the Jerusalem in your community and in your city and in your nation that you need burden for first that we would establish a beachhead of prayer and of unity around Christ the head that would swallow up the judgments and the divisions and cause holiness and purity that God could come back for a corporate bride. And you could conquer your community and nation and reap that harvest because the time is urgent and the hour is late and God's purpose is to do a fast work of bringing forth his corporate bride. As truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Will you be partaker of this wonderful inheritance of the saints in light in the light of God's love and of his presence of glory? God bless you all. Thank you for listening.